I heard a story from, from a friend of mine recently, a friend named Caleb. He's a, a pastor. He used to pastor a church down in Simi Valley, California. Um, he's kind of stepped out of that role now, and he's, he's more into a, a role where he just kind of works with pastors, kind of pastoring pastors, so to speak. Um, but he is, uh, he's very active in, in helping pastors learn to engage culture better. He told us this story from about four years ago, the summer of 2015. He was at uh, the North American Christian Convention, which was this convention of uh, churches all across our brotherhood that would meet every summer. And this this particular summer of of 2015, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. And on the last day of of the the convention, he woke up, uh, he said kind of slept in a little bit, woke up, and his phone was just blowing up, getting message after message on his phone. And he said, as I checked my phone, it was rather cryptic messages, just real short, like, oh man, like uh, messages that would say, wow, what what do you think about that? And and just all these types of messages that didn't really give any context, but it was obviously somebody's reaction to something big happening. And he said, it didn't really take me long to realize what they were talking about, and I turned on the news, and he said it was confirmed what I was thinking, because it was on that morning in July of 2015 that the U.S. Supreme Court made their ruling in the case of Obergfell versus Hodges, better known as the Marriage Equality Act. And basically what that uh, ruling stated was states no longer have the ability to deny anybody the right to get married on the basis of sexual orientation. And uh, he he, uh, was getting all these messages coming at him all over the place because you see my friend Caleb has a very unique perspective on this. He uh, was raised by gay parents. Uh, he was born, and at about two years old, his parents divorced, and each came out of the closet. And uh, he, he was, was raised in Missouri, in Columbia, Missouri, with his dad, and then in Kansas City with his mom and, and his mom's partner. And in particular, his mom and, and her partner were very, very active in the gay community there, marching in parades, uh, being a part of what was happening. And so he grew up in that, that culture and in that community. And then growing up in that community... Caleb saw the church at its absolute worst. He saw the church picketing and protesting these parades, holding up signs. I'm not going to repeat what they say. You can probably figure it out. He saw the church shouting insults at them, shouting things at them, spraying them with things that need to be left unmentioned. That's the church. He saw that firsthand. And he grew up hating the church, hating Christians. And as his story goes, as as could only be by the grace of God, He went to a Bible study in high school with the intention of making fun of the Christians there and discovered who Jesus was. And he uh, said that I went home and had to explain to my my gay parents that I'm now a Christian. He said if coming out of the closet as a teenager to your Christian parents is hard, coming out of the closet as a Christian to your gay parents is even harder. (laughs) Because they disowned him. But his story goes, he went on and, and became a pastor and, and, and adopted the, the view of, of homosexuality that a lot of us have, and, and what he would call the biblical view of, of that. And he went on to write a book that has been incredibly impactful called Messy Grace. If you haven't read this, I would encourage you to get this and read this, because this book, as the, uh, the, the subtitle reads, it says how a pastor with gay parents learned to love others without sacrificing his convictions. And that's what the the book is all about, how we can learn to engage our community, and in this book in particular, it's the LGBT community, without sacrificing your convictions. And in the summer of 2015, this book was about to release. 
In fact, just as an advanced copy, we, we had just gotten this a few weeks before it, it, it actually hit the shelves. And so he was already preaching this sermon all across the country. He was already preaching this sermon in churches everywhere. And at that convention, he was actually teaching a class on that. And the day before, he had gotten acquainted with, with an, a, he said, a new friend. A guy he didn't really know too well yet. But he said, I, I decided to leave my hotel. He said, I put, just put my phone down. He said, I knew I was going to be getting phone calls to do interviews on TV and radio throughout the day. He said, I figured I'd just deal with them the next day. But he went on over to the convention, and as he was walking into the convention, this, this pastor that he had just become acquainted with the day before, he said he walked up to me and was just distraught. He said people were already out in the streets of Cincinnati celebrating or protesting, you know, one or two of the extremes. But this pastor walked up to him, he said he put his hand on my shoulder, and he just had this look on his face, and he goes, what are we going to do now? It was just this look of despair and distraught. What are we going to do now? I'll come back to that story here in a minute. But kind of keep it in your mind because that plays into the theme of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're wrapping up this series called Generations today. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the major generations that play in our country and that play in our church. And, and the thought of this whole series is that all of us needs each of us. And each of us needs all of us. And so we've looked at these, these five generations and what it is these generations bring to the table that we can all benefit from. Because each generation brings something the others don't have. Uh, the silent generation brings a, a set of wisdom that the rest of us just have not had a chance to collect yet. Uh, the, the, the baby boomers bring this entrepreneurial spirit, this hopefulness uh, for the future. And, and they can look back with honesty and say, you know what, we didn't always do things right. Let's, let's make sure the future generations don't fall into our same mistakes. Gen X, we talked about, overcame cynicism, overcame this kind of negative outlook on life to become adaptable and to, to, to become hardworking. Trevor and Edie last week, I thought, painted the millennials so well that they are just a generation that strives and feeds off of relationships. That's their currency, is what Edie said. A generation that just seeks authenticity in everything. Today, we're going to look at Generation Z. And, and I'll just put a big disclaimer on the top of this because this is going to be a little differently structured than the last couple of weeks for a few reasons. Uh, one, because you see the question marks here at the end of Generation Z. Technically, it's still ongoing, but if we were being honest, probably there's going to be a split somewhere. There, there's probably already been a split, we just don't realize it yet. Usually, these generations have to get into their adulthood and really start adapting long-term patterns of, of, of behavior and, and thinking before... Uh, sociologists can really pin down what it is that they're like and with the, with the, with the trends that they follow. And so we kind of left that open-ended. So Generation Z technically includes everything from newborn babies all the way up through maybe freshmen in college. And you can, you can be honest and say, like, my kids at six and seven and, and nine months are going to be drastically different than kids that are 15 and 16 and a little bit older than that by the time they get to that age. It just is what it is. But for now, we look at this generation and we say that, that it's still being shaped. It's still being molded. The past few weeks, we, you know, we've kind of done that little quick hitter history lesson on, on what these, these generations have, have gone through and what shaped them and whether it was, you know, like a Pearl Harbor in World War II and the Great Depression for the silent generation or Vietnam for the, the uh, baby boomers. Generation Z, that's where we're at right now. Those are the things that are happening in the world right now. And if I could just sum up this generation in one word... It would be the word fear. And here's kind of the thing, and, and I know there's some of you who are teenagers in the room. 
I'm going to call you kids today. Don't get offended, okay? I'm just way too lazy to say kids and teenagers, so it's just going to be kids, okay? But here's the thing that the, 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 the kids and the teens who've been raised in this culture are being raised in fear, and they might not even realize it. Because the fear really actually comes more from us. The parents, the grandparents, the Gen X and the millennial parents raising the Gen Z uh, children. And what's happening is this is the generation that's being raised post 9-11. This is, this is the first generation to be raised post 9-11. Those of you teens and kids, you're going to read about 9-11 in the history books the way I read about Vietnam the way some of you read about Pearl Harbor or John F. Kennedy's assassination or whatever changed your outlook on the world, you're going to read about 9-11 in the history books. You're going to watch videos about it on YouTube or in your classroom or whatever. But 9-11, as Trevor mentioned last week, changed everything. And as a result, we now have this culture of fear all around us. Here's an example of this. My two daughters are six and a half and four and a half. And they've flown on commercial airlines more than many adults have, just in their lifetime, the way it's gone. In fact, they've flown more than my two parents have combined, and they're both baby boomers. And yet never have my kids flown on a commercial airline without having to watch me take off my shoes and take off my belt and empty my bag, take my computer out, take out my my liquids from my toiletry bag to run it all through security screening, to watch me have to do the pose, you know, and hold it. Occasionally get the wand because something, maybe I forgot to take change out of my pocket or something. They've had to watch that every time. That's normal for them. Why? Why do we have to do all that? Because once some dude tried to sneak something in his shoes on an airplane, and now we want to make sure that that never happens. Because once somebody tried to sneak something else on an airplane, we want to make sure that never happens. It's fear. Fear grips us. Fear fear gets, gets a hold of us. And it's seeped through our society. In fact, for the entire lives of Generation Z, we have been fighting a war on terror. That's the name we give what's gone on in the Middle East the past two decades. The war on terror. We're literally fighting fear by its very definition and by its name. This is a generation that has helicopter parents. That's, that's a parent who basically hovers over their kids to make sure they don't get hurt. And I can tell you from my, own, my, my wife and I, from our experience, we don't like to call ourselves helicopter parents. But we look, in the, look back, we kind of are. Like, we're okay with our kids tripping and falling and, and hurting themselves. In fact, if you saw Titus this morning, he's got one big bruise here and one big bruise here. <laughs> Amelie almost always has skinned knees, and they're kids, right? Some parents don't even want their kids to sneeze, but I mean, we, we're okay with our kids, you know, falling down, but we don't let them out of our sight. You know, when I was a kid, man, we kind of had free reign in the neighborhood. Ride our bikes everywhere, we'd go do things, so long as my parents kind of knew about where we were at, now it's like, we don't let our kids go anywhere. Why? Because suddenly we're terrified. And here's the thing, there's nothing new out there. All the stuff that's a threat today was a threat a generation ago. The difference is we just know about it now. There's always been somebody that was waiting that could have snatched one of us. There's always been trafficking going on. But now we know about it. Now we know all about it. And as a result, we're terrified. We're terrified to let our kids out of our sight because something might happen. Why? Because this happened. And we know about everything now. Social media happened. And we read about stuff that's posted all the time. In fact, how many of you would just post something online that you see that somebody's scared about? You share it and you don't even research it. 
We do this all the time. Social media changed everything. This is the first generation that's been raised on social media. Uh, Facebook was started in 2004. I was a senior in college. It was great when it first came out because you had to have a college email address to even get an account. And it was a closed network. It was great. It was just another tool to try to impress girls, you know. <laughs> Didn't work very well, but I mean, you know, I tried. But you think about what Facebook and, and, and then Twitter and how about MySpace? Any MySpacers in here? Yeah. That was great while it lasted. Now it's Instagram and Snapchat and all these other things. And you think about what we have used Facebook for. Now it's an announcement platform. When, when Jennifer and I started our relationship, it was official when we changed our statuses to in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was official. Put our engagement on there. You know, as soon as our, our children were conceived, put that on there. Not, not the actual conception part, no, but <laughs> when we announced it, we announced it, we didn't cross that line, just letting you all know. <clears throat> but we did, you know, and when they were born, within a few minutes, maybe an hour, boom, there's a picture of them. And the best part was every time we've had a kid born, I tell my, my family, like, you're not allowed to post anything till, till we do. And my dad's like, come on, have you posted anything yet? Have you posted? Come on. I, I, like, he, he's like, he can't sit still. He's like a, like a, you know, a kid. I gotta post. I gotta post. Social media. These kids have raised their lives, gone, gone through their lives on social media. Their first everything has been shared. Uh, Titus got a first tooth a couple weeks ago. Facebook. Here in the next couple weeks, they'll start walking. Facebook. First day of school, first baseball game, first everything gets shared. These kids are being raised on social media. Everybody sees everything. And if you really want to know what it is that's shaping our youth besides just that, again, I don't need to give you that history lesson like we've done. Just go turn on the news, and you'll see what's shaping our kids. This is a generation that is being raised where mass shootings are pretty common now. And the tragic part is when mass shootings happen, we don't really even bat an eye anymore. Unless it's some new record number of people. That's heartbreaking. In fact, when mass shootings happen, what's our initial reaction? We need more gun control. Or, no, we don't need as much gun control. Within an hour of every mass shooting, it's a, it's a political debate now. And that's what our kids see. In fact, you watch the news. Whatever news channel you watch, you watch it. And unless it's just maybe a local news station, you're probably going to get a political slant on things. And what's happened is, in, in, our, in, in my lifetime anyway, I can't speak past my lifetime, but in my lifetime, this is the most politically divided we've ever been. And it's just growing more and more every day. More and more extreme. And what's happening across our country is we've developed this attitude of, well, if you don't agree with me, I'm sorry. I don't really have room for you. We've lost the ability to have healthy disagreement and healthy debate. And our kids see that. We, we've become extreme, and we don't realize it. We just realize the other side's become extreme. Whatever side you're on, our kids see that. And what that's telling our kids is you're not really allowed to disagree with anybody. Because if you disagree, then you're just cutting that person out of your life. This is a generation that's being raised in a culture completely opposite from, from the builders. If you were here a few weeks ago, we said with the builders, when they came of age, everything was black and white. 
Morality was black and white. Truth was black and white. And everybody knew it. Everything mainstream was right or wrong. Everybody could understand that. That's not even close to the case today. Not only are are we not black and white, we're every color imaginable and the lines are blurred. Anything goes in society and culture today. Our kids are being raised and being told, you want to have a relationship with whomever you want? Cool, go for it. You want to change your identity? Awesome, cool, go for it. That's what we're teaching our kids in society and culture today. And in fact, they're saying, you can do anything you want as long as it doesn't offend somebody else. You can disagree, but you got to keep it to yourself. And if you disagree out loud, that, that's, you're bigoted. And what, what's really happening, if we're honest about it, what's really happening is you can disagree with anybody so long as, as they're a Christian. Because that, that's what's happening, is the church has been replaced. The church is no longer the center of culture and society anymore. In fact, this is a generation being raised in what's called the post-Christian society. It doesn't mean Christianity doesn't exist anymore. It just means it's not mainstream. It's not the, 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 the pulse setter anymore. In fact, you can look, there are other religions at play in our country today that are far more restrictive than Christianity, and it's okay for them to do what they do. But it's Christianity that's under attack. And our, our, our students, our kids, all the way from birth through high school, are coming of age. Remember, this is what we've talked about this whole series. What was happening in the world when these kids came of age, when you, your generation came of age? This is what's happening as these kids are coming of age. They are being taught that anything is okay. Truth is relative. Morality is relative. It's whatever you want it to be. Just don't tell me what mine should be. And yet, here's the challenge. We have to teach our students the truth of the gospel in the context of society. That's the challenge. We have to teach them that what God said still stands, that God's word still stands, and you need to get this message out to your friends and into your culture, but you have to figure out a way to do it in a way that doesn't chase them off. That's the challenge. That's the hard part. And, and, and what happens instead is, I think as, as a, a group, we just happen to see what's going on with our, our, our kids. And we don't understand it, and our default response is just to, to shake our heads in disbelief and go, man, kids these days. We've all probably said it or thought it. Just like, man, I don't like what they're doing, but man, Kids these days, I don't know, man. I think we're just in trouble. I thought about this this week. <laughs> I can think back to whether I was a teenager or, or whatever, but I think back to my grandpa, born in 1933. My papa, as we called him. I had a grandpa and a papa, so this is papa, my dad's dad. Born in 1933, army veteran. He likes to say he served in the Korean War. He served during the Korean War. He was very, very clear about making sure he volunteered to go to Alaska so he didn't have to go to Korea. But he, he always told us you know, his, his lessons. But I don't remember how many times I heard him say, back when I was a kid, a teenager in the 90s, I just don't understand why you kids wear those baggy jeans, why you wear those baggy t-shirts. I don't understand why you listen to whatever this music is you're listening to. And I'd hear it from other, you know, maybe some older guys in the church, older, older men in my life who didn't have kids around my age. Don't understand why you dress that way. I look at high schoolers today, and I'm like, I don't understand why you wear those tight jeans. Why you wear those shirts? Why you listen to whatever that music? I've become one of you all. <laughs> I'm not okay with this, okay? 
become a curmudgeon. <laughs> Save me a seat at Denny's. <laughs> <laughs> but why? Here's how. It's very simple. I don't really spend any time around teenagers. And here's the simple fact of this matter. You can't understand what you don't invest in. It's that simple. You cannot understand what you don't invest in. A few years ago, I was with teenagers every day. I was, I was teaching high school. I was coaching high school girls. I could understand them. Somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> You've been around a lot of, you know, 15 to 17-year-old girls. You, you know that somewhat is pretty good, actually. But I could understand them. Not to say I agreed with them, but I could understand them. But now, I'm not around them that often. I do understand six and seven year old girls. Why? Because that's what I have. I'm around them now. I don't know the music that, that the teenagers listen to these days. You put on a Disney princess song, I'm all over that thing. <laughs> I'll flat out rip it. I'll, I'll let it go right now. Ryan, you can come join me. <laughs> we were singing Moana together last week. It was great. But you don't understand, you can't understand what you don't invest in. It's just that simple. And here's the, the thing, guys, if we're being very honest, and understand, too, in none of this today am I trying to come at you guys and, 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 and bring the whip and come after you guys. I'm trying to, to encourage and challenge today because this is, this is towards me, too. Here's, here's the thing. Here's what it boils down to. All of us, it's so easy to fall into this trap of, I just don't understand the youth today, so I'm just going to kind of hold back. And when we do, our only response is to just shake our heads. Kids these days. Because all of us have like certain areas that we feel passionate about, right? We all have things that we're drawn to and often that's what we're good at. I think God does it intentionally. If God knows that you're talented musically, he's probably gonna pull you in that direction. He gave you those gifts for a reason. If God knows you're, you're better with, with senior adult men or women, that's where he's gonna pull you. That, that's, just, that's the way God works. But here's kind of the thing and, and I wanna make this clear. If you're not willing to invest in that next generation, you kinda lose the right to criticize them you kind of lose that right. If you're not willing to invest in something and get an understanding, you don't really get to just shake your head. And I'm guilty of this. I'm very guilty of this. I tell Trevor all the time, like, man, I would not want your job. I think you've got one of the most challenging jobs on the planet because you're trying to figure out how to reach a generation that is changing daily. Parents of teenagers can understand this. This generation is changing more rapidly than any generation before. Why? Because the world is changing daily, more rapidly than it has before. And you've got to keep up with that. And so for most of us, it's just way too easy and comfortable to lay back into what it is that we feel the most comfortable in. And, and I want to caution us against that. And the reason I want to caution you against that is because Jesus didn't work that way. If you've got a Bible, go to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple of spots through this short little section here. But I'm going to set this up for you. Mark chapter 9, kind of right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. And, and, and in this particular spot, we're going to be in verse 35. Jesus has been walking with his disciples. In verse 33 and 34, he's walking with his disciples and as they're walking, the disciples get into an argument. Anyone want to guess what the argument's about? Who's the greatest among us? Jesus, whose opinion matters the most? Hey, are, are my ideas better than his ideas? 
Are we going to put, put my policies into, into work in the ministry? Because, I mean, his are awful. Have you listened to his? I mean, gosh, is, seriously. Have you, have you heard what Peter has to say? It's terrible. If it sounds familiar, church, it's because for 2,000 years we've been doing this. We've been doing this. And often we're doing it with, I think, good intentions. I think the, the disciples aren't just trying to prove who's the greatest. I think they're coming at it with good intentions, but they get into an argument over who's the greatest among them, and Jesus doesn't turn, he doesn't light him up. He doesn't say, like, you know what, hey, get in line or get out. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, you know, turn around and just lecture them. Here's what he does in verse 35. <clears throat> so sitting down, Jesus called the 12, and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Let's just pause and think about how ridiculous of a comment that is. If anybody other than Jesus said that, you'd be like, well, that's just, that's just silly. We're not going to, no. If you want to be first, be the last. Verse uh, 36, it says, uh, Then he took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jump ahead to, to chapter 10 and, and, and look at, at verses uh, 13. Similar situation here. This is a few days later. Uh, Jesus is in a crowd of people. He's healing people. Verse 13, it says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now let's give the disciples a little bit of leeway here because there's a massive amount of people and they're probably thinking, hey, you know what? These people over here are really sick. They need it first. You guys just wait your turn. Get back. Your kids, you got plenty of years to get healed by Jesus. Verse 16, when Jesus saw this, or verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 15, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I had to read that verse, I don't know how many times, over and over. Whoever will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. I was thinking about what this means this week. And, and I kind of came up with this, this statement, it may be a little vague, but I said this, if, if we want to get closer to Jesus, we need to be more like children. That may seem a little big, vague, but here's what I mean. Again, I've got six and a half, four and a half. My six and a half year old is just super inquisitive, asks questions all the time. She'll wear you out. No idea where she gets this from. <laughs> but she asks me questions nonstop. In fact, I bring her to my office after school a couple of days a week, and about every three minutes, hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Yes, Elsie. Hey, Dad. Yes, Elsie. Every time she's asking me a question, and what she's saying without actually saying it is, hey, Dad, I know that I don't know this, and I know that you do. She's saying, hey, Dad, I know that you're smarter than me because you're older than me. I know that you can do more things than me because you're bigger than me. I know that, that I can't do this, but I know that you can. And what she's saying without saying it is, hey, I'm pretty humble, and I need help. That's what it's like to be a child. You're, you're, you're humble without even realizing it. You've got like this ingrained, inherent humility just, just dripping out of you. 
and you understand you cannot do this on your own. And, and my kids are both that way. Babies are born that way. Titus will crawl up to one of us and just reach up like a child, like we should do for God. You ever seen anybody raising their hands during music? That's kind of what they're doing. Hey, God, I can't do this. I need you. We come to God with humility like kids do. And here's the warning, church. Here's what we need to be aware of. We need to embrace those younger ones who are coming to us because look what he says. Go back again to chapter nine. Look what he says in verse 42. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. That's the comforting Jesus we all remember from flannel graph in Sunday school, isn't it? <laughs> if anyone causes one of these little ones to believe, or who believe in me to stumble, let's just say it's not going to end well. Last week, Trevor and Edie talked about the millennials. They said 60% of millennials who have been raised in church have left the church. Now, some of those have left, yes, because they've realized that they believe more with what society has to say than what the church has to say. That happened even during the time of Jesus. That's, that's, that's happened forever. It will continue to happen. But many of those millennials who have left the church have left because of the church. Why? They've left because they've seen the church shift its focus from reaching the world to pleasing its members. They've left because they've seen the church more concerned with what they want than what they need to be doing. And they've seen the church move from being authentic to being self-serving. And here's the thing, church, again, I'm not trying to pile on on this because I think we have done this without realizing it. It's been little by little over the course of time. And what's happened is society out there has changed more and more and we just don't understand it anymore. We don't like it, so we just kind of become a little more insulated more and more. And that cultivates fear. In fact, I'd say it this way. We fear what we don't understand. We don't understand society anymore. We don't understand culture anymore. Culture's rejected the church, and we don't understand it, so we're terrified of it. And again, I don't think this just happened overnight. I think we've built up to this over the years. Again, look back over the, this series, how, how each generation has stepped a little further away from the previous one. And we've just drifted. And when you're just drifting, you sometimes don't realize how far you've drifted until you stop and look back. And here's the thing about fear. Fear can be a great companion, but it's a terrible leader. H having fear in your life, if you can control it, is actually not a bad thing. Fear can keep you safe. A friend of mine is terrified of snakes. Terrified of snakes. And he'll tell you, a snake's never going to hurt me because I am never getting remotely close to one. <laughs> Doesn't even want to look at a picture of one on Facebook. I mean, he wants no part of it. Fear can protect us. But if you let fear take the driver's seat, man, you're never going anywhere. Fear will pin you down. Fear will keep you from even thinking about trying anything new. And, and, and I, I kind of picked on, on the 830 service with this. <clears throat> I said, you know, I've, I've been to, to lunch with their, their curmudgeons before, and they don't even look at the menu. They just know exactly what they're going to get. It's like they don't, they, they don't even think about it because they're like, well, I like this. And that's not a bad thing to like something. But if you just don't think you want to try something new, that's where it starts to become an issue. 
Fear pins us down. Fear makes us afraid that what we're gonna do is gonna fail automatically because we don't understand where it is we are trying to go. Our nation as a whole has has stepped away. Again, we're in that post-Christian society now. We've stepped away from the church. We've replaced the church with mankind. And as a society, we kind of worship at the altar of humanity nowadays. And we're terrified as the church what to do about it. Cycle back to that story I started off with. My friend Caleb walks towards that that convention hall in Cincinnati, Ohio, and and that that new friend of his, I don't know what we're gonna do now. What are we going to do? Just distraught. Caleb said, I didn't tell him this answer, but he said, my initial response in my head when he said, what are we going to do now was, really? Like, like, really? Like, this is the first negative thing that's ever happened in the world? Like, seriously? He goes, I really don't think on that morning in July when the Supreme Court of the United States of America made its decision that God stood up in heaven and looked over the edge and goes, I did not see this coming. (laughs) It's like God didn't get on the phone and call Jesus and go, hey, conference room now. We've got a big meeting. It's like God is still in control. He always has been and he always will be. And it doesn't matter what we try to do to mess things up. God is still going to be in control. And I don't think that he's caught off guard by anything. Why? Because he told us that he's never caught off guard by anything, and I believe that. In the Old Testament, through the the prophet Isaiah, God said this, remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there's none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Translation. God is in control. And because of that, there is no th- nothing, nothing that we need to fear. Nothing about society that we need to fear. My, my friend Caleb wrote a second book a few years later, an incredible book on just dealing with fear. And here's what he said in that book. He said, our fear is no match for the unlimited power and uncontested reign of God. That's pretty much how he starts his book off. And in this book, he deals with a lot of social issues that we are dealing with today. Things like racism and poverty. Things like politics. Things that divide. He said, God is still God. In fact, the book's called God of Tomorrow. Why? Because God is still going to be God tomorrow. No matter how scared we might be of it, God is still going to be God tomorrow. And he understands what, what the James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 1 when he says, God does not change like the shifting shadows. He holds true. Yes, society is all over the place. And and as a result, the mission of our church even needs to shift from time to time because we need to be able to flow in that current and reach society and reach culture. We are called to do that. We aren't called to make disciples just when they happen to be like us, just when they happen to be like they were 50 years ago. No, we are called to make disciples in our world today. And God is still in control. And God still has us anchored to the middle of that stream, even though we're, we're drifting side to side, we're still anchored to the truth. So cycle back to Gen Z. This generation that is still being formed, that is still figuring out who they are, what do they have to offer the church? I would just sum it up simply by looking at my own kids and say that they offer us hope and optimism. 
Tell me a kid that's not optimistic. If, if you don't believe me, ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up. You're going to get some unrealistic answer. And you know what? They don't know it's not realistic. My nephew Griffin, a couple months younger than my daughter Elsie, he's a kindergartner, six years old, wants to be a policeman, a firefighter, a professional football player, a train engineer, um, and about six other things. He doesn't care that, number one, he's a Witten, and therefore the professional football player is not going to happen. (laughs) (coughs) And that most of the other things he needs each require like two or three college degrees. (laughs) He doesn't care about any of that. He wants to be those. In his mind, that's what he's going to be. And all of us, at some point in time, we had something that we wanted to be, and we didn't care what anybody else said about it. If it was unrealistic, because... We just were never going to achieve that. I mean, how many of us guys wanted to be professional athletes when we grew up? We grew up to become five foot nine and, you know, not very fast. (laughs) How many of us wanted to be things that just were unrealistic because whatever reason? And we just didn't care. The, The realism didn't matter. We were optimistic. We were hopeful in the midst of all of this. Church, when it comes to our mission, when it comes to us reaching our world, making disciples, we have to embrace hope and optimism and not worry about what seems realistic. Not worry about what seems practical. Because we worship and serve a God who doesn't fit those boxes. He does not fit our definition of logical. He does not fit our definition of practical or realistic. I had a uh, professor, a mentor of mine, was giving me uh, just general criticism one day, honest criticism. And he said, Kurt, he said, here's the thing about you. He goes, you know what you know and you know what you don't know. He goes, and you know that. (laughs) (laughs) And he was dead right. What's he mean? I know exactly what I can and can't do. I know exactly what I know. And I know what I don't. And therefore, it is way too easy for me to sit over here to this side into what I know I can do and what I can't do. And it's a lot more challenging for me to step over here into something that I don't know if I can pull off. Why? I'm a perfectionist. I have to get things right. I'm not afraid to fail, but if I'm going to fail, I want it to be a productive failure. It's like I want to control my failure even. <laughs> what he was saying is, God doesn't fit that mold. Because you don't know God the way you think you know God. None of us do. None of us can possibly fully know God. Church works the same way. And too often we rely on what we can see and touch and grab a hold of and wrap our minds around. We, we, we see our own lives. Maybe we see a checking account that tells us we can't do something. And God's saying, I want you to do this anyway. We see a set of personal skills or an amount of knowledge that tells us what we can and can't do. And God says, I want you to do this. It's over here outside of this. And here's, here's kind of what I came up with on this. When we let our faith become bigger than our fear, the result is hope. Guys, we have God. That's the hope of the world. And if we want the church to thrive, I want the church to outlive me and my kids. I want this church, Redwood Christian Church, to outlive me and my kids. All of us in this room. That's only going to happen when we let our faith become bigger than our fear. And when we let that hope that God gives us lead us and drive us and push us. 
Hope reminds us that our best days are in front of us and not behind us. And when it comes to this, this young generation that we don't understand, the only way we're going to get a grasp on that is to invest in it. To challenge ourselves to step into what we don't think we're going to like and what we don't think we're going to understand and immerse ourselves in it anyway. Take that leap, take that step. You can have your foot up and not even know where it's going to hit the ground. That's faith. It's trusting God because he's already there waiting for you when you finish that step. As we we close today, I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able to. So if, if, if you wouldn't mind... I'm going to close this this way with, with a statement that Jesus made. And, and understand, this is not just a statement. This is not a, a lesson that Jesus was teaching. This was not something that he just wanted us to kind of polish our ministries with. This was a promise that Jesus gave us the night before he was crucified. He'd been with his disciples and, and he had, had told them what was about to happen and they didn't understand it. And, and they were on the way to the garden where he was going to be arrested just a few hours later. They were confused and they were scared. And in a few hours, within a few hours, they were going to scatter and hide. All but one of them. And here's what Jesus tells them in the midst of all of this from John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives it. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that that promise applies to us today in 2019, just like it did the night he said it. God, our world is scary and it's confusing and we don't know what to do sometimes. We're we're, we're looking into the future at generations that, that we don't understand in a society, in a culture that has rejected you. And God, we, we can throw our hands up and we can say, woe is me. What are we gonna do next? God, give us the reminder that this has happened before. This has happened before all over the world and the church has continued to move. The church has continued to thrive because you are in control. God, as we come together as a group of generations, a group of people very different from one another. God, give us that reminder. You are God and we are not. Let our faith be bigger than our fear. God, we love you. We're so thankful for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.